A lot of people today have become interested in their family backgrounds, especially because of the availability of private DNA testing through companies like Ancestry.com and 23andMe. Many of us would like to know more about where we come from and from whom. But what about Jesus? Where does he come from and from whom does he come? We'll look at a passage that answers those questions and more today on Groundwork. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Scott, today we begin a new series of four programs for the season of Advent. Traditionally, four weeks long, thus the four programs, and uh, the season when Christians think together about Jesus coming into the world, which we'll celebrate at Christmas, and his coming again someday to finish the work he began. And uh, Dave, uh, Groundwork has been on the air for about a decade, about 10 years now, and you and I have been doing it together for most of those years. And so like a lot of pastors, when Christmas and Advent roll around, we sort of say, well, there's only so much material in the Bible that deals with Advent and, and what we call Christmas. There's really only the one big classic Christmas story in Luke 2, a little bit in Matthew, nothing in Mark, and really only just high theology in John. So we also wondered uh, for this series, what should we do that we haven't already done before in past Groundwork Advent series. And so what we hit on was uh, to sort of say, well, what does the Apostle Paul have to say about the incarnation, about the Son of God becoming human? And it's an interesting question, Dave, because some people may know that there have been theologians in the church who have suggested that because Paul never refers to the Virgin Mary, doesn't seem to refer to the Bethlehem manger story, some think that Paul either didn't know about what we call Christmas or he didn't care about it, or that the incarnation wasn't important. But in this series, we're going to look at four places in Paul's letters where it becomes clear that the incarnation is, in fact, central to his theology. You know, more liberal scholars have argued that those birth stories that are so precious to us and that we sing about, you know, Mary in the in the stable and the manger and the angels and the shepherds and the wise men and all the rest of it were sort of pious little details that the gospel writers invented and uh, that it's not really important to the Christian faith. But I think we hope to see in this series that it is very important and that Paul also, though he doesn't tell the details of the story, actually that wasn't his job, uh, nor was he there. Remember, he wasn't one of the original 12 disciples. So it's the business of the gospels to talk about Jesus' earthly life and death and resurrection, and it's the business of the Apostle Paul to explain their meaning. So we come to this idea, this doctrine, Christian teaching, of the incarnation. Right, which um, literally means to become flesh. Uh, John 1.14, the Word was made flesh. Incarne, if you get chili con carne to eat, that means chili with meat. And so this is the Son of God made flesh. And uh, we're going to look at some places in Paul. Uh, Today we're going to go to Galatians. Uh, In the second program, we'll do Philippians. Third program, 1 Timothy. And the final program in this series will be some verses from Colossians. But uh, today, uh, we go to Galatians. And Galatians is an interesting letter for lots of reasons. The centrality of Jesus' sacrifice and the totality of his saving work is a major, major theme in Galatians. Because after Paul had left Galatia, 
false teachers crept in and started to teach the Galatians that, well, Paul told you Jesus did it all, but he really didn't. Jesus got the ball rolling, and he got salvation a good ways down the road, but now you have to follow the law and finish salvation or you won't be saved. Paul heard about that, and he was so upset that the Galatians bought into that, that in this letter, he skips the usual Thanksgiving section and just starts yelling at them right off the bat in chapter one, you foolish Galatians who bewitched you. I told you Jesus did it all on the cross. So the humanity of Jesus and the death of Jesus is central to what goes on in this letter. Right. In Galatians, the issue really is faith versus law. How do you become right with God in Bible language, justified made righteous in Christ and find your way back to God through the the Christian life? And is it by faith alone, as Paul insists, or is it by faith? And then you have to add the law back in. So it hinges on this question of the law. And in Galatians 3 and 4 in particular, Paul addresses that. And uh, the passage that we have in mind for Advent is from Galatians 4 verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as children. And because you are children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, then also an heir through God. So God sent his son Born of a woman, a little bit of an unusual way to describe it. I don't think most of us uh, go around and introduce ourselves and saying, hi, I'm, I'm Scott Jose, and uh, I was born of a woman. It's like, <laughs> right. well, how else would you uh, have come? But Paul makes that point very clear because that speaks to the true humanity. He was born just like the rest of us. And in Jesus' case, it does make good sense to point out that he was born the usual way. He had a mother who had become pregnant. We know it's a miraculous pregnancy. And so he was born that way as a true human being, a human being who therefore, you know, could die uh, and did die for us. But anyway, again, uh, just because, uh, you know, sometimes scholars think Paul wasn't familiar with the details of Jesus' birth, he knew about Mary uh, and he knew uh, that Jesus had been born, that Jesus didn't just appear from out of nowhere. Right, yeah. You think about the alternatives. I mean, if Jesus really came from God directly— he could have just appeared. He could have gone poof, and there he was uh, in the stable or, or even on the roads of Galilee teaching and preaching. But no, he came the same way every human being has come into the world after the first pair. He was born in the natural, normal way. He was really and truly a human. And it's possible, too, that behind that phrase, born of a woman, Paul is not just thinking about Mary but he's thinking about Eve Mm. and the very first promise of the gospel, the first hint of the gospel, when God said to the woman after the fall and after uh, all the terrible things that followed from sin, you know, one day one of your children is going to defeat the evil one. Which is why it's significant that Paul doesn't just say in Galatians 4 that he was born into the world, but rather God sent his son born of a woman born under the law in order to redeem those who were under the law. So he was sent. This is a special mission. Uh, He didn't just appear for no particular reason. It's sort of like if you send in a military brigade in Afghanistan, a general will send them for that specific rescue mission. God sent the son for a specific rescue mission to redeem us who were under the law, 
who could never keep the law, so he kept it for us and died for us to forgive us, to renew us. He did it all, which is Paul's major point in Galatians, and he could do it all for us humans because he was human. That's a great analogy, Scott. It's sort of a rescue mission. It's almost like a military mission. That's actually the idea behind C.S. Lewis's famous uh, space trilogy, we're the occupied world, occupied by the enemy, and, and God's going to invade. But there's one big difference. Because of the incarnation, what we remember is God didn't just send someone else in the person of Jesus. God actually came himself. It wasn't like a general sending some poor private right. into harm's way. He came himself and took on all the the dangers and vicissitudes up to death itself in order to save us. And that's the truth that Paul affirms here. But there's more, too, and we want to look at that next. What does it mean to be born under the law, as Paul says about Jesus? So we'll look at that in a moment. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. And I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Dave Bast. And Scott, today we're in the first of four programs looking at Paul's theology of the Incarnation, his take on the whole Advent story of Jesus coming into the world from God in order to save us. And we just uh, noted the text from Galatians chapter 4, where he said that God sent his Son into the world, born of a woman— But then he also adds that he was born under the law. And again, for Galatians, this is going to be a major uh, important theme because, as we said earlier, uh, the Galatians had fallen prey to the false teaching that they had to help save themselves by keeping the law, by keeping the Jewish law. They had to get, if they were males, they had to get circumcised. If they, no matter who they were, they had to eat kosher food and observe the law because by doing that, they would then finish Jesus' unfinished work of salvation. Paul got wind of that, saw red, and fired off a very, very almost angry letter. It starts out hot in this letter in chapter 1, again, even calling the the, uh, Galatians foolish and asking who bewitched them to betray the true gospel. And it all has to do with this thing about the law. So Jesus was born under the law, and I guess we all are in a sense, right, that we all are born into God's world and are expected to color within God's lines and live happily within God's moral boundary fences, but we don't. We sin. And so who can keep the law? Well, Israel never did. They were given the law. They failed over and over and over. Nobody, uh, even the the best characters in Scripture, Moses or David or whoever you want to name, Peter, the apostle even, nobody lived perfectly. Who is going to rescue us from this? Well, somebody who's born under the law, but who has the ability to keep it. Yeah, absolutely. So in chapter three, Paul has talked about the consequences of failing to keep the law. And he he points out that what the law says is that the one who keeps it perfectly will be right, will be righteous. But 
if you break the law, you place yourself under God's curse, which is really strong language, even scary language. But that's what the law itself says. Cursed is everyone who does not keep all the words of the law. That's from Deuteronomy. So then he points out that actually Jesus was cursed because he was hanged on a tree on the cross, and the law also pronounces that that's a specific sign of God's curse on a person. And what's the upshot of it all? The upshot of it all is, in Calvin's wonderful phrase, he took our chains upon himself so that he might release us from them. Jesus came to perfectly obey the law and even to pay the penalty for law-breaking in order to set us free. That's how he saves us. That's why it's important that he was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. And Paul has an interesting take on the law as well, and uh, this has generated a lot of scholarship and even a little bit of controversy in recent years. What was Paul's view of the law? Uh, But in Galatians, in Galatians now, um, the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, we read some later verses in 4 earlier, but Paul says, before the coming of this faith, so faith in Jesus who did it all for us, before that, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Uh, And then he goes on to say, when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the law. The point being, so he calls in the Greek there that the law was our guardian, a pedagogos. When I preached on this years ago, Dave, I I sort of, uh, that that literally can mean a, a teacher, a guardian. I compared it to like a babysitter, that we have this babysitter of the law that kept us until we could mature in Christ, right? So what Paul is saying is that the law was never actually meant to save us. God knew that the law all by itself was never going to save us because as sinful people, we were never going to be able to keep it. Only the coming of God's Son would see the law kept perfectly, and then we get credited with his righteousness, right? right? We, we get credit for what he did right. So the law just sort of um, kept us in check, yeah. kept us safe like a babysitter until our older brother Jesus could come. Yeah, and actually kept us in check, but also sort of led us in a certain direction. Right. Because in the ancient world, first of all, there wasn't universal education. There weren't public schools everywhere. If you were wealthy enough to be able to educate your son, and basically only sons were educated, then you would send him to a private tutor or a teacher And to get him there, you didn't do that yourself. You had a slave called a pedagogos, a guardian or a leader or a teacher who wasn't the actual teacher. His job was to convey the child safely to the teacher. In other words, to the destination uh, where he had to go. And Paul says that, in a sense, is the role that the law plays. It guides us and kind of guards and protects us but it also is driving us to look for an alternative, another source of being right with God, and that namely is Christ. So the law, if we consider it in its gospel usage, is to show us the need of the gospel, to show us that we we really have no alternative. We better find another savior because we can't save ourselves. Right. Paul says this in Galatians. He certainly says it in Romans that you're not supposed to look at the law and say, oh, there's my salvation if I just keep it. You're supposed to look at the law in despair. You're supposed to look at the law and say, who will save me from this wretched body of death? Right. Um, I I can't do it. Um, It shows us the sinfulness of sin, he says in Romans. Yeah. Uh, It convicts us. Um, 
and that's sort of uh, one of its main purposes. Uh, so God knew all along that we were going to have to get saved from somebody coming in from the outside to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Uh, the whole history of Israel shows that no amount of striving is ever going to get us over the finish line if it's all about us. If, yeah. it's all, if it's up to me, that's not gospel. That's not good news. That's bad news. You know, there's a story in Genesis 15, a very strange story, where God causes Abraham to fall into a deep sleep. He's cut up these animals for sacrifice, and then God moves through the middle, and it's a covenant-making ceremony. And the idea is, if you don't keep the covenant, you're going to be like those animals. You're going to be chopped down. Abraham doesn't walk through it. And what mm-hmm. one of my favorite pastors loves to refer to that story, and what he says is, you know what? In Christ, God keeps his end of the covenant, and he keeps our end too for us right. because we couldn't do it. And that's exactly Paul's point here. Yep. Jesus keeps our end of the deal to make us right with God. Well, that's a, a lot to digest. But in this Advent series, there's one more thing we want to observe as we close out this first program of our Advent series, and we'll do that in just a moment. What does it look like to honor and serve God in your marriage and family? Visit FamilyFire.com to discover how you can better live out your faith in the context of your relationships. At FamilyFire.com, you'll find articles and devotions curated to encourage you to stoke the Holy Spirit's flame in your home. You'll also find an online community that can help you explore what it means to follow the Holy Spirit's lead in your family as a spouse, parent, or even an in-law. Join the community and be encouraged at FamilyFire.com. I'm Dave Bast, along with Scott Jose, and you're listening to Groundwork, where today we're looking at a passage specifically from Galatians chapter 4, where Paul talks about the incarnation, how Christ came from God, was sent by God, was born of a woman, assuming a real and full and complete human nature, uh, in order to do something to save us. And that something was to take on the obligations of the law, to keep them perfectly, to fulfill for us all obedience to the divine law, even to the bitter and shameful death of the cross, is the way uh, one old liturgy puts it, and then to pay the penalty of the law, the curse, uh, becoming a curse for us, all so that we could be set free, and not only sort of set free and made right with God, but made something even more, Scott. Right. We're moved from slaves to heirs, to children who have the privilege of calling God Abba, Father, which is a lot of pastors have pointed out, and many of our listeners have probably heard this in some sermon or another, it's sort of an intimate term like daddy, Yeah, that we're admitted to the family now, not as slaves, uh, but as children, as co-heirs to everything that Jesus in- inherits because he is the Savior. But now we inherit the same thing, principally, of course, uh, that's eternal life. But also, again, that privilege of being able to be in God's presence without fear, Uh, One of the things that happened when Jesus died, according to the Gospels, is that the curtain that separated out the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple tore from the top so that we knew who was doing the tearing. God tore open that curtain so that now all of us have access to the Holy of Holies and all of us can feel comfortable in God's presence because— where with Jesus. When I preached on this idea years ago, Dave, I mentioned that when I was a student at Calvin College back in the 80s, every once in a while, a professor would invite me to have lunch in the faculty dining room. 
And whenever I did that, I always stayed really close to the professor because if anybody looked at me like, what are you doing here? I wanted to be able to say, I'm with him. Yeah. I, I'm with him. Well, that's what we are like in God's presence. Um, we don't belong there normally, but we're with Jesus. We're with him. He brought us because now we belong. One of the struggles I think we all face as Christians is to get it right about our relationship with God. We're often, most of us, I think, conscious of our failures and our our stumbles and our falls and our ongoing sinfulness. Yeah, 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 God must really hate me. God must frown on me. He's going to punish me for doing that or the other thing. And it's so hard for us to get through to this gospel truth that, no, no, we're his child now. You are his child through Christ, through what Christ has done for you, and through the spirit of Christ that he's poured out uh, for all who are in him. You know, Scott, I'm old enough to remember the Kennedy presidency, and I remember in particular a famous photograph, it became famous, that was published first in Life magazine, and it showed the president in the Oval Office. He was leaning against his desk. His head was in, you know, sort of bowed in thought, and an aide was standing beside him, giving him some kind of briefing. But under the desk, you could see his little son, John, playing Mm -hmm. uh, at his feet. That is a perfect illustration of what we are now. We're not the aide who's kind of nervous and briefing God uh, in our prayers. We're that little child who is loved by his father, her father, and who can look up and say, Daddy, here I am. Yeah, What a wonderful truth. To be able to feel that and know that consistently is so comforting, I think, and encouraging for us. We did a series on Groundwork a while back, Dave, on uh, biblical images for the church, and the family of God uh, was one image that we looked at in that particular series, and indeed we are we are a family. And in the most, probably the most famous verse of Galatians comes in Galatians 3, uh, basically verses 26 through uh, 29. This is sometimes been called the Magna Carta for the new humanity in Jesus, uh, where Paul makes it clear that Jesus has torn down everything that could keep us from having fellowship with God, but Jesus has also torn down all the things that keep us from having fellowship and unity with one another. And so it goes like this from Galatians 3, beginning at the end of verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, Paul isn't saying here, we we mustn't hear what he's not saying. He's not saying that who we are doesn't matter specifically as men or women, as white or black, as Western or African or Asian, as slave or free, you know, high class, lower class, rich, poor. Those differences do still remain and we can celebrate our own cultures, but they don't really matter as far as being in Christ is concerned and as far as relating to God is concerned. This is the ultimate human ideal of diversity within unity and equality despite our differences. We are all accepted in the beloved, as the letter to the Ephesians says, and we are all one in Christ. And so when we think about Advent, 
And when we think about Christmas, this is the good news. This is what the Son of God sent to the world, born of a woman, born under the law. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. And, you know, Christmas has become known as a family time. But we also know that can be a two-edged sword because some families are broken and there's been divorce and there's been dysfunction and there are children who refuse to come home even for Christmas. And so the family aspect of Christmas can sometimes be a heartbreaking reality. But take heart, even if that's you. The good news of why Jesus came is that we are all family now. We are all in the family of God. That's what Christmas is all about. That's why Jesus came. And for that, we say thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with us today on Groundwork. We're your hosts, Dave Bast with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we study Christ's incarnation through the words of Philippians chapter 2. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or tell us what you'd like to hear next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media, a family of programs designed to help you see your whole life reframed by God's gospel story. Visit reframemedia.com for more information. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob. <laughs>